You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. You guys know the game, Would You Rather? Would You Rather? Some, okay, let me explain it, because obviously some of y'all don't know it. There's like three people that were like, yeah, we know that game. Um, so the idea of the game is you put uh, two choices before someone, and the name of the game is to present a, a two hypothetical scenarios that are like impossible to decide between. You try to make the decision as difficult as possible. My six-year-old son's really good at this, um, at, at coming up with would-you-rather scenarios. Um, sometimes I, I love when kids don't get it, and they're like, would you rather eat candy or broccoli? Like, like a really easy decision. Um, but like, if, if you've not been around Pastor Jabes or Pastor Jeremy enough, what you'll soon figure out by hanging out with them is that they love this game. Uh, mainly because they love to argue about stuff, because then we like debate why some choice was made. But would you rather always starts really lighthearted? Like, would you rather uh, take a vacation to the mountains or to the beach, right? And then you see argue pros and cons of each vacation destination. But it always goes dark, like really dark, really quick. And it's like, would you? How would you rather die? You know, it always just turns like real weird. You know, uh, what's your preferred death method and and things like that. Um, and so, <laughs> it, it's just it's you know you can play it in a car. You know, when you're on a, your next road trip or whatever. But I wanted to start today with a would you rather. Uh, for us as a congregation. So here it is. Would you rather have excruciating physical pain for a, a short period of time, or would you rather have a long, multiple decades of mental anguish, but have a, a purely, a very pain-free kind of physical existence? So would you rather have excruciating pain for a short time and then it be over with and mentally be fine, or would you rather be mentally tormented for a few decades um, with no physical pain? That's, a, that's kind of a tough question to me. Uh, but what I want to present to you today is that our Lord and Savior Jesus did both. He, he took on both of those. He didn't choose one or the other. He took on both of those for us. And so over the next month at our church, four to five weeks, uh, we're going to be finishing the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be looking at Jesus' crucifixion. And it's going to mainly focus on the, the physical torture and pain of Jesus as he's uh, arrested, beaten, mocked, spit upon, uh, nailed to a cross, murdered. Um, but we just, a couple weeks ago, focused on Gethsemane and the, the, the mental stress that he was under. And I want to remind you that Jesus was called a man of sorrows. That as he left heaven, God incarnate, um, God it, it, it has always existed. So Jesus being part of the Godhead has always been. He existed in perfect unity and joy in the Trinity beforehand. But then he put on flesh and became human and came into this world that's filled with sin and despair and depravity. And so for over three decades, he walked this earth dealing with the, the trauma and the stress of the task that awaited him at the end of his life. And so I want to show you in today's passage three things. Number one, confession. Number two, substitution. And number three, the humiliation of Jesus. Let's look at the first one, confession. You see, the confession that Jesus makes here in this passage has become our good confession. It is the confession that we hold to as Christians that we will not waver from or step aside from. It is the gospel message. When we talk about who Jesus is, it is central for who we are. 
Now, confession, if I could define confession for you, it, if you look it up in Webster's, it's got actually two definitions. Definition number one of a confession would be like in a legal sense, in a court case, um, you confess to a crime. It's the admission of guilt. But definition number two is a statement of religious doctrine. Now, those kind of seem antithetical, don't they? They seem like opposite ideas. Um, but the reason they're tied together, the, the root doctrine of depravity, guilt, is actually why confession has become known as a religious term. Because when, um, when those who are in a religious gathering confess corporately or together that they are sinners, they are making a religious doctrinal statement. And so at our church, um, at, after the sermon, before we take communion, we're going to read a confession today together. And reading that confession is both of those things. It's an admission of guilt on our part, and it is a statement of belief on our part. It's, we're admitting that we're sinners, but we're also proclaiming and making a statement together that we believe God has saved us and forgiven us of our sin. Now, in this judicial hearing, Jesus makes a confession, but he doesn't admit guilt. His confession doesn't have the, the element of uh, depravity or sin or guilt in it because, of course, he was sinless. Um, he had no guilt. He bore no fault. Even Pilate admits this. He finds no evil in his actions. Now, in this hearing, um, Jesus is taken before the Romans. If I can just kind of backtrack and remind you, um, on Thursday night of the Passion Week, he gathers with his apostles. They have the Last Supper together. They exit. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays. Ultimately, he's arrested. Peter chops a guy's ear off. Um, he's taken into custody. Um, all the disciples flee. And here we're led to this point where after three trials before the Jews, now he's finally taken to the Romans. The reason for that is the Jews had three trials, one with Annas and two with Caiaphas um, and the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling, governing elder body of Israel. And they had removed from them, by the Romans, the authority to put anyone to death. So capital punishment was outside of the realm of what they could carry out as a body because the Jews were ruled by the Roman Empire. So here, when they take uh, Jesus to Pilate, they're not pledging allegiance to the Romans. We see in verse 1, it says, as soon as it was morning. So they, they do all their trials at night, and as soon as it was morning, chief priests held a consultation with the elders, scribes, and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, they don't do this as an, out of allegiance to Rome or Pilate or Caesar. They do this so that capital punishment can be achieved. They want Jesus dead. They want him to be executed. And for Jesus to die, he would have to stand condemned before a Roman court, not a Jewish one. And he goes through three trials uh, with Rome as well. Uh, one with Pilate. Pilate ultimately finds no fault in him and sends him over to a guy named Herod. Herod um, uh, makes fun of Jesus for a while and then sends him back to Pilate's court where Pilate is uh, faced with making the decision we see in today's passage. Verse 2, Pilate asks Jesus this question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers him, you have said so. Now, I want you to notice the difference uh, from the Roman question, from the Roman trial to the Hebrew trial. If you were um, around a couple weeks ago when we looked at Jesus' trial before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, they asked him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed or the son of God? Um, they ask him a very religious question, whereas Pilate doesn't, it doesn't seem to be, he's concerning himself with religion. He's asking more of a racially motivated question, an ethnically motivated question. Um, it's a political question. 
He says, are you the king of the Jews? Because if Jesus proclaims himself to be the king of the Jews, then that means that Jesus could be an insurrectionist, someone who is trying to usurp the authority of Rome and, and, and establish a kingdom within the Roman Empire for himself. That's what Pilate is concerned with. And so he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus could have easily wiggled out of this. He could have said, no, Pilate, no, Rome, no, Caesar. I'm not trying to overstep any sort of authority here. Um, that I'm trying to live a quiet life in Galilee. I'm from the redneck land of, of this country. Um, listen, I'm, I'm not trying to build any kingdom. The witnesses that were trying to prosecute Jesus couldn't get their testimonies to agree. The prosecution had a horrible, horrible case. They couldn't prove anything. And Jesus, under Roman judicial proceedings, could have smooth-talked his way into a mistrial very easily. He may have still been held captive by the Jews, but he would not have been executed. But Jesus' response is recorded in Greek as sulego, which quite literally in Greek is two words that mean you say. You say. Now, most translations translate this literally. Today we're reading from the English Standard Version. Um, it's good to translate the Bible literally, but from Greek to English, we actually miss a little bit of this because this was a common way of saying, I agree with what you're asking, uh, or it is as you say. That it is is actually implied in the Greek language, and we lose a little bit of an English, and some translations even rightfully translate it as, it is as you say. This would become known as the apostolic church's good confession in the first century. And so in the first century, they referred back to Jesus affirming the fact before Pilate that he is king. In 1 Timothy 6, um, much later after this, if I can fast forward in time a minute, uh, Paul writes to a young pastor to fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life to which you recalled about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So he says that this is the good confession that the early church and thereby the church in 2021 needs to hold to. The reality is, is that that confession that Jesus is king is what we base our lives on. Your hope is in who your king is, not in who your president is. Your hope is in Jesus who is strong, not in where your own strength lies. Your hope is found in the one true king who stood before the highest authority in the world at that time and said, it is as you say, I am the king. In a private conversation with Pilate that's recorded in the Gospel of John, Jesus would look Pilate in the eyes and say, you would have no authority unless I gave it to you. You see, the confession of Jesus has become our good confession, that my entire life, my confession, my creed, my allegiance is based on the fact that Jesus is sovereign, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus is King. Amen? So we do not depart from that good confession. Christ's good confession on trial has become our good confession. Let me continue in the passage. It says, the chief priests accused him of many things. Verse 4, Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring Against you, but Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. You see, Pilate was amazed at this simple confession, yet the lack of defense that didn't follow Jesus' simple confession. The other gospels, again, give a little more detail about the interaction. Um, there's a private conversation that happens where Pilate calls 
Jesus off the stand, so to speak, and talks to him in his private quarters about truth and about authority. And Jesus proclaims to be the ultimate authority. Um, When he's not on the stand, Jesus kind of even is more forthcoming, but he's silent on the stand as to lead to his condemnation, showing that he's in control of even his own death. Uh, Pilate sends him to Herod where he's mocked and then returned to Pilate. Pilate's trying to get this guy off of his responsibility. He's trying to get him off the docket. For, sent a message to him saying, matter of fact, another gospel tells us that Pilate's wife had sent a message to him saying, do, do no wrong to this man, do not execute this man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. That God in his sovereignty even sent a dream to Pilate's wife that tormented her. And he said, she said, do not execute this man. Now all of this would ultimately lead to Pilate's attempt to release Jesus. Now you need to remember this. Pilate's motivation, his goal in all of this, is to release Jesus. So let that lead us into substitution. Point two is substitution. Um, I watched uh, Monday Night Football this week, which I don't watch much football. My favorite team is my imaginary team I have. Like, I love fantasy football because it takes grown men and makes us sound like the, the smallest children, right? Um, and so it's like I move these little guys around on, my, on the screen of my phone, and now I'm a coach, right? And I'm in the, I got skin in the game. And my quarterback's Patrick Mahomes, and he was playing in Monday Night Football um, against the Giants. And um, so I watched a little bit of the game um, on Monday night. And, um, and, man, I hadn't watched football in a while because I'm cheap. Amen? And because um, I don't pay for the subscriptions and stuff. And I don't know if y'all think this or not, but football's gotten a little soft. Not that I'm the toughest guy. But they, they, threw, they were throwing flags the whole game, like just over crazy stuff. One time this guy like just did this, and you could kind of see his helmet. You know, so he's obviously said something, but he was probably saying like, hello, you know, something really friendly. I'm sure it wasn't anything profane, but they just, you know, throw a flag, 15-yard penalty. And um, I was amazed at how many penalties there were in the game. And it was just the, the game, you know, really slow because of all the penalties. But one of the penalties that they called was an illegal substitution that resulted in an illegal formation. And the guy, you know, he gets out there and turns his mic on. He begins to explain it. And, you know, I've been out of the game for a while, although I'm a great fantasy coach. I didn't really know what was going on. I just know there was something wrong with when they went from defense to special teams, right? Um, when I was playing basketball as a kid, I remember when we would have a substitution, sometimes the coach would give us a towel to make sure that we don't mess up that somebody was supposed to come out of the game. And so if I was subbing in, then I had to take a towel and I had to give it to Matt and say, Matt, you come out of the game. So, you know, because I wasn't going to play the next play with a towel in my hand. And it would remind me that if someone goes in, someone has to come out. That's a basic principle, but it's central in the Bible that what we call in in theology the substitutionary atonement of Jesus means that for you to be included in the kingdom of God, Christ would have to be excluded. For substitution to happen, spiritually speaking, for God the Father's wrath to be fulfilled and his grace to be extended, your acceptance in his family would come by the rejection of Jesus. This had to happen. Now, Pilate is going to bring about his own substitution. He brings in um, his own attempt at substitution. He's going to attempt to execute someone instead of Jesus. So because he sees Jesus as innocent, he wants to execute someone else. I could imagine Pilate being like, you know, to one of his guards or one of his assistants, I want you to go and I want you to find just the grossest, most deplorable, despicable inmate that we have on death row and bring him up here. And they bring up this guy, Barabbas. He wants to make the decision easy, right? I was flying on an airplane one time, 
with my wife and two of my kids just a while back. <clears throat> and um, we get on the plane. And remember, I'm cheap, so we're sitting in the back and by the restrooms. <laughs> That's where we fly. And, um, and they get on the intercom, and they're like, we need someone to get off the plane. We'll give you $100 if you get off the plane. Everybody kind of looks around. Nobody, everybody wants to go home. It was one of those flights from D.C. to West Virginia where everybody knows everybody. Like, we're all going to the same place. We're probably all related somehow. And nobody wants to get off the plane. And, um, and so, okay, we offer $200, $300. You know, they keep up, up in the, the ante. And eventually they say, the plane is overweight. We need someone to get off the plane because we have too much weight on the plane. And I'm looking around. It just so happens we're on a plane full of, like, little tiny women, and there's me. And I'm, like, trying to look as skinny as I can, you know. I'm trying to, you know, be small. When I got on the plane, I had to walk down the aisle like this because the ceiling's, like, right here. And, um, and so I'm trying to look as small as possible, but the decision is obvious. Like, the flight attendant's locking eyes with me. We need someone to get off the plane that's heavy, sir. So... So eventually, I'll, I'll give like the mocking Jay salute. I will volunteer as tribute, you know. Um, and so I take five hundred dollars and kiss my wife goodbye, and they fly me later, right? Um, and the plane's like, "Thank you, heavy man," and um, and they get home safely, and we live happily ever after. Now, as as clear and easy as that decision was, right? Pilate has an easier one. He's trying to present the easiest solution possible for this angry mob. And so this, this passage tells us what he does. Verse 6, Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. That's an important word, instead. You see, the, the substitution was put on the stage that day. And Pilate approaches the mob with these two prisoners. On, on one side, and I imagine there's some kind of platform there, on one side of the stage he, he props up Jesus of Nazareth. He stands there in shackles, and they bring in Barabbas, from the cell, and they stand him up on the other side of the stage, and Pilate stands between them. He says, who do you want? Who do you want me to release to you? Look at these two men. And they know who they are. And Barabbas was an insurrectionist, meaning that he had led a revolt against the empire and um, had murdered people. Uh, other gospels tell us that he was a thief. Um, now, I don't know what you may think about murderers and robbers, but they tend to not be real honest people in the rest of their lives, too. So even though that's mainly what we know about Barabbas, we could probably presume that he wasn't a very good dad, that he wasn't a very good husband or boyfriend, that he probably didn't pay his taxes, that he, he probably wasn't volunteering at the Little League field. He, he just was, like, if you just think of the most deplorable example of someone in society, it was Barabbas. And then over here you have Jesus of Nazareth. And where Barabbas had murdered people, Jesus, had, all he had ever done was heal people. Where Barabbas had stolen from people, you have Jesus giving things away to people. I mean, Jesus' life, the 33 years at that point, had represented everything that was the opposite of what Barabbas' life had looked like. And Pilate stands between them and he says, okay, mankind, choose who you want. Who should live? Who should die? And Pilate said to them again, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? 
Verse 13 says, They cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him. You see, there was a substitution that had taken place. Barabbas was not supposed to live. He was destined for execution. And his hope as he sat on death row in the Roman cell wasn't that he could escape somehow. It wasn't like Shawshank Redemption. He's going to get a spoon and whittle his way through the wall or some kind of elaborate prison break. The only chance he had of getting out of the predicament he was in was if he was released by the Roman authority because of a substitute. And I just want you to think about this. What do you think he did as he stood here? You think he looked over at Jesus as the crowd was shouting? You think he knew deep down in his soul, I'm the one that's, that's actually deserving of this death, that guy isn't? Barabbas deserved to die. But he's going to let an innocent man die so he doesn't? Ask yourself this, what if, what if you were Barabbas? What if you'd made some mistakes in your life? What if mistake one led to mistake two that just amplified and you just let go of everything and you found yourself completely deserving, knowing what you'd done, deserving of everything that came to you, and some authority said, we're going to take everything you deserve and put it on someone else and let you go free? What would you do? Would you say, no, no, listen, I would love to be free, but Pilate, I can't let you do that because this man is innocent and I deserve everything that's coming to me. I would like to think in my nobility that I would do that, that I would say, no, Pilate, take me, keep me as prisoner, release this man because I'm actually guilty. But I want you to hear me very clearly. Look at me. You are Barabbas. You are guilty. You stand condemned before a holy God. And God has taken all the judgment, wrath, and punishment for those things, and he has put it on his son instead of upon you. Now, how do you think Barabbas lived after that? Maybe he went on and got a job. What do you think his typical Monday looked like after his life was spared? Do you think it was changed in perspective a little bit? He would either have to be a sadistic, horrible human to go on as normal, or he would have to live his life in gratefulness and thankfulness. And that same choice is upon you. Given that another died in your place, you cannot just have an average day anymore. An innocent man died, so you don't have to. An innocent man uh, was pour, had poured upon him the wrath of a holy God so that that doesn't happen to you. You don't get any normal days anymore. It brings you to this point where you have to have a decision to just be sick and sadistic or worshipful and obedient. Matthew 27 tells us this, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now, I want you to pay attention to mankind's answer here. The people of this crowd all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Now, it's one thing for me to take the fall for something, but they say, let his blood be on our hands and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. You see, Pilate tried to wash his hands clean of this whole thing, but his hands remained dirty just like all of mankind. Mankind spoke on this day that we would rather have sin than righteousness. And if you were in the crowd, you would have chosen the exact same thing. 
The Bible makes it clear that we're all the same, that we find great unity in the fact that we love our sin more than God's righteousness. And you have free will, you have choice. Don't get me wrong, you have the freedom to choose, but your choices suck. You choose wrong every time. We continually, like a dog returns to vomit, we continually choose our sin instead of holiness and righteousness. And so let the blood of Jesus be on our hands and on our children. And we stand condemned. You bear more guilt before a perfect God than you could ever realize. But here's the gospel. Here's the good news. That Jesus' silent suffering that day carried more grace than you can comprehend. Carried more forgiveness than you can ever comprehend. Enough grace and forgiveness to forgive a man like Barabbas and certainly forgive jacked up people like you and me. Point three is the humiliation of Christ. I want you to see what Jesus went through. And when we see the humiliation of Jesus, it humbles us as well. The humiliation of Jesus has humbled us. And it brings us to a point where we shatter our pride and we fall in worship. Verse 15 says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, which has a beating, a very severe beating that, that honestly... In the Roman world, many people died just from that before they even got to the cross. That's how severe this beating was. After scourging Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Listen to this, verse 16. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. Uh, They didn't see fit to leave some of the guards and the soldiers and the officers around the courtyard and guarding the gates, but rather they called together Every single officer that they have that day. Look what they do. They clothe him in a purple cloak and a mockery, which was a a collar of royalty. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his brow, bringing blood running down his face. After his back has already had the flesh ripped off of it. And they begin to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they're striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. They're making fun of him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. How can any of us sit here and listen to something like that and not be crushed and humbled If you believe that this is history, that this actually happened, and you should, it's it's validated not just by the Bible, but lots of secular history. You have no option but to be in rebellion or to worship. There's no in-between. There is no in-between. Like, yeah, I haven't really just, you know, I've just not really done what I need to do in the Lord's eyes lately. Like, there is no in-between. You are a sadistic Barabbas or you are a repentant worshiper. How could any pride linger in our souls when we see the humiliation of Jesus? The humiliation of Jesus has truly humbled us. Um, This week I was flying back from Charlotte. And um, I'm I'm coming into the the airport and I procrastinated a little bit getting to the airport as I do. And and I'd passed the Panda Express when I landed. Because Panda Express, praise be to God. I was so glad that it was there in my time of need. 
And I, I was running a little late on time, but I was like, I think I got time. I mean, it's got Express in the name. I'm going to go to this panda. And so when I come to the line, I'm coming from one side, and there's this sweet little old lady coming from the other side. And I probably beat her a little bit, but, like, we kind of got there at the same time. I was probably first. She was a close second. But, like, but you know, I'm not trying to be a jerk, so I'm like, ma'am, go ahead. So she gets in front of me in line. And I'm, I'm just looking at my watch, and, and the line's not progressing as quickly as I thought it would. And we get up to the front of the line, and um, it's her turn. We had conversed a little bit in line. And, um, and she goes to order her food, and as she orders fried rice, the, the server gets the very last scoop of fried rice and puts it on her plate. And I'm like, dang, I'm going to miss my flight. My wife's going to kill me. You know, like this is just spiraling out of control now. But I'm not giving up because it's Panda Express. And... And the lady turns to me, and we've been chatting a little bit, and she was like, do you want that plate? I'm so sorry. Like, I, you were really here first. And I was like, it is not a big deal. And in my soul, I was like, it is a big deal. Because like, <laughs> the, the worker said it was going to be like five to ten more minutes till fried rice was done. And I wasn't getting Panda Express without rice. And, um, and she said this. She was like, I just feel so embarrassed because this should have been your spot in line. And I assured her it was fine. It wasn't a big deal. But, but I thought about that because I'd already kind of prepped this sermon. This was on my mind that, that just being taking my spot in line to be one spot in front of me brought her humility and even embarrassment. And if that can happen over fried rice, when we look at Jesus Christ, who never broke any rule, who lived the perfect life, taking our place for eternal life, and that ought to change the way we worship, Amen changes everything. It ought to change the way we go to our jobs. It ought to change the way we parent. It ought to change the way that we interact with our spouse. It ought to change everything. That that spirit of humility should walk with us through every facet of our lives. And do you see what this substitution accomplished? I want to read one more verse and then I'm done. If he, or, uh, Isaiah chapter 53, which is a prophetic verse in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says... It was the will of the Lord to crush him, or Yahweh. This is a reference to the Father. It was the will of the Father to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now, I want you to understand what's happening here, that the act of God at the cross, that what the Father poured out on the Son at the cross was not an accident. It wasn't something spiraling out of control for God. It was an active and intentional move from the sovereign God of the universe. It was the Father's will to pour all of his wrath on the Son instead of sinners like us. The verse continues, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, that's Jesus, and his death being an offering to pay for our sins, it says that the Father shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so when the Father looks at Jesus, he sees a righteous substitute on your behalf. And so now when the Father looks at you, he looks over and passes over your sin, and he doesn't count your sins against you. It's as if they've not been done because they've been forgiven by Jesus, and instead he sees the righteousness of his Son. He doesn't just see Jesus, his offspring, but he sees all the offspring of God, all those called by God into repentance all those who are redeemed by Jesus at the cross. Because Jesus took your place, you are now a son of God. Because Jesus took your place, you're now a daughter of God. How amazing is that? 
And that happened on the cross, right? Your forgiveness, that substitution happened on, in the passage that we're reading about. It didn't happen when you said a sinner's prayer. It didn't happen when you walked an aisle and knelt down at the front of a church building. It didn't happen when you got baptized. It happened at the cross. It was secure and it was done. The transaction was taken care of. And it's accomplished all by God, not by us. And because of that, we're now adopted into God's family, that we get to be called sons and daughters of God. And you should have known, right, that God writes beautiful stories. The Gospel of Mark is a beautiful story because it tells us this prisoner's name that was on death row but was released instead of Jesus. Barabbas. Barabbas in Aramaic. Bar in Aramaic meaning son, Abba in Aramaic meaning father. Barabbas means son of the father. How beautiful is that? That the, the, the personification of wickedness has a name that means son, not criminal. That when you come before God in worship, when you kneel at your homes in prayer, when you speak about him to your children or your spouse or in your home, when you come to God, he doesn't say welcome, former, felon, ex-con, criminal, sinner. He says, welcome, son. Welcome, daughter, into my presence. You are now part of my family. You see, the son of God dies so that sons and daughters of the father can live. What a beautiful substitution. That is is worth me basing my entire life on. That can get me through everything. It changes everything. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.